graduated a couple of weeks ago. And even though uh, my dear Steph is a great conversationalist, even she, after a few days, <laughs> runs out of things to say. So um, I ended up watching a lot of TV. I watched, I watched the news. Uh, and uh, goodness sakes, that's uh, not good. The world's really messy out there. Um, you got war, you got uh, school shootings, you got death and viruses and lockdowns and inflation and goodness, almost $5 gasoline. Um, stock market is tanking, protests, divisions. Um, so it's no coincidence that we are studying Joseph's life at this very time as God has given us a glimpse into how the view these life circumstances in the story of Joseph. So as we go through his life this summer, see if you don't agree with me that his single greatest characteristic is the ability to relate everything to God. He has a godly, heavenly perspective. And with this perspective, Joseph was able to forgive his brothers as he could see the good, the providence of God, even in the wrongs committed to him. Stephanie read for us the Romans 8.28 passage, the all things work together for good verse. And Pastor Job did a, a wonderful job last week explaining it. But I had already written this, so we're going to touch on it again. Um, because sometimes we all question uh, with life this hard and messy, how does any of this fit together for our good? What is Romans 8.28 talking about? Why is a nice Jewish boy like Joseph, hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit and sold into slavery? Let's say you're in Florida, Siesta Key maybe, uh, in the Gulf swimming. Here, a commotion on the beach, people are yelling and waving frantically, so you turn and you see that dorsal fin right behind you bull shark bearing down and then you see that toothy grin as he bites into your body but the next thing you see that you recall as life-saving air is pushed into your lungs is the most beautiful Baywatch-esque lifeguard <laughs> who pulled you from certain death applied mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and your eyes meet and you fall in love and you live happily ever after from disaster to happiness ever after. I bet that's what Romans 8.28 means. Maybe Bill missed the point last week. But then, what about this? Johnny Erickson taught it a quadriplegic in her book, When God Weeps. By the way, we just started that in Sunday school this morning, and if, uh, I encourage you, 9 o'clock, uh, we'll go through that. Some really uh, good discussion there. Um, Anyway, Johnny tells of her friend John, who uh, once robust, six foot three man, now confined to bed because of a degenerative nerve disease, unable to move, unable to even call out, and he's visited in the night by an ant, the crawly kind, um, and then hundreds of ants and thousands of ants, and they are literally eating him alive. John's wife, along with his nurse, uh, find him the next morning with the ants still in his hair and his mouth and his eyes. 
And Johnny writes, why God? Why this additional suffering? This is affliction spinning out of control. How can this possibly ever be good? Now, the reason I related both of these stories is that I think the commonality and what we focus on in both of these stories is the individual, me, I, mine. Um, we live life with our thoughts and our emphasis. Too often our focus is on us, on me. Why, God, why is this happening to me? Why now? I was just getting my life together. And then Johnny, Johnny says that even sometimes our good reasons are still me-focused. This cancer has made me closer to God or closer to family. I, be, I have become more grateful. And we rarely consider the big picture. We don't have Joseph's perspective. So as we go through the Joseph story today in this summer, keep that in mind, what I call the unseen plan of God. The big picture, that God's ways, they're not our ways. And we're going to catch a glimpse of the complexity of that plan in the Joseph story. But in our day-to-day -day lives, we may never even start to see this. What God is doing, how God is working. Because his working is so normal and regular in our daily lives uh, that we often never consider what his role is. So today, and I'll elaborate more on it later, I want you to know that when ants eat you alive, you don't have to know why. We don't know why. We don't have to know why something is happening. We really aren't owed an explanation. And our little finite human minds can never comprehend that infinite plan of, of God, of infinite God and his infinite plan. Romans 8.28 is speaking in light of eternity, given our assurance about the future, where we're going, one taken as a whole, that for the benefit of our sanctification, for God's glory, and for the benefit of others, that God is working out all things for good. So in today's passage there in Genesis 37, that Steph read, well, properly attired in her coat of many colors, um, as background to that story, uh, recall that God in Genesis chapter 15 makes a covenant with Father Abraham. And at the very beginning of that covenant relationship with his chosen people, God tells us of a 400-year stay in Egypt and then the return to the promised land. And we're actually told why in Genesis 15, 15, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the story of Joseph answers the question of how God's people ended up in Egypt. And we can see how it was part of God's plan, but just like us in our daily circumstances, uh, Joseph's brothers are oblivious to that unseen hand of God in their day-to-day -day actions. And as a matter of fact, the brothers' very efforts to destroy the dreamer are actually fulfilling Joseph's dreams. Because these are prophetic dreams. Say, how do you know that, Lauren? Well, uh, stay with us, because they come true. God's sovereign purposes lay behind the events of this story. 
I also found it interesting in the commentaries I, I read, almost all of them uh, viewed 17-year-old Joseph as uh, arrogant and spoiled and called him a tattletale even and said that these character flaws are, are the main reason that his brothers hated him so. Um, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think it's worth noting that in the 14 chapters devoted to Joseph in the Bible, I don't re read of anything bad ever reported uh, about him. He never complains. He seems faithful in all circumstances. And consider this, uh, Reuben, Joseph's oldest brother and heir to the birthright, slept with uh, his father Jacob's wife, Bila. Joseph's brother Simeon and Levi slaughtered all the males in the town of Shechem. And I think it's likely that they, by these actions, forfeited all their rights, and so Jacob appointed Joseph as his heir. So then, his coat of many colors was a painful reminder to the brothers of their father's choice, and if so, then the jealousy that we read about in verse 11 is further fueled by that fear of loss, a desire to preserve what they have. Um, I think they also hated Joseph because he wasn't as evil or maybe evil like they were. Envy is a very close cousin of jealousy, and it's described in Proverbs 14.30 as rotting the bones. And we find then that the dreams further exasperated their jealousy as a brother's grain was bowing down to Joseph's grain. And um, I think maybe, too, the brothers hated the implication of the dreams more than they hated Joseph for relating them. They seemed to be taking these dreams seriously as revealing what God might do, otherwise not just dismissing. And then you had the messy family dynamics. Joseph was called the favorite. Why was he the favorite? Well, as a little bit of background, he was the first son of Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite wife, a wife he worked 14 years for. And Genesis 29:20 says the first seven years of work seemed like just a few days because of his love for her. And also you have a very impressionable Joseph, about 13 years old, when Jacob limped home after wrestling with God. Some of you may recall that story. He would also likely have been very familiar with his dad's dream of angels ascending and descending that stairway to heaven. He would have recalled vividly the death of his mother while giving birth to his brother Benjamin. Undoubtedly, all these things made a great impression on, on Joseph, and in turn, uh, he was a faithful and obedient son, the favorite, and I suspect actually for good reason. Now, some of you are probably thinking right now, especially you that know my brother Tim, I bet Lauren was a favorite son. <laughs> Boy, I'll just say this. I never had a coat of many colors. But I did one time have a new pair of, of green uh, chore boots that came clear up to my knees. And uh, they were significantly taller than those little four buckle overshoes that Tim had. Um, 
But I think all those granted me was the obligation to wade through the deepest mud and the deepest manure in the cow yard. Um, so I'm not sure I was the favorite. Um, Joseph, later on, when he was asked to go check on his brothers, had to go about 50 miles to the area of Shechem. We just talked about Shechem. I bet they rolled out the red carpet for him there. And then, upon not finding the brothers, he traveled a dozen miles or so further to the Dauphin area. This is wilderness, rocks. Uh, those that went to Israel will know exactly what I'm talking about. So I would like to point out that that's what favorite sons do. The difficult jobs, more than it's required. He didn't just go home. He went and did the, the ultimate. Now notice that in the upcoming weeks, as we go through the story, that an awful lot of dominoes uh, had to be lined up and toppled to have Joseph end up in Egypt. You had the brother's sin, you have Joseph's dreams, you had he being the favorite, you had the birthright lost, you have him going to Shechem, he happened to meet a guy who happened to go overhear the brothers say they were going to Dauphin. Uh, Reuben was there to keep Joseph from being killed initially, and then Reuben's gone, so Joseph gets sold. No coincidences. Every detail critical. It's interesting, there's no mention of a guide in this chapter, but he's still managing all those minute details to provide salvation for the family and the nation. I think that is the unseen plan of God, God at work, which is my first point. Um, that unseen plan of God in the story of Joseph, it gets the family to Egypt to preserve them, turn them into a great nation. And God's all wise, redeeming love is completely compatible with terrible things happening in the lives of those he loves. Chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way, from all eternity, and by the completely wise and holy purpose of his own will, God has freely and unchangeably ordained whatever happens. This ordainment does not mean, however, that God is the author of sin. He is not, or that he represses the will of his created beings, or that he takes away the freedom of contingency or secondary causes. We don't have to know why. We just have to trust God to accept his plan. I think if we knew all the whys and what fors, it really wouldn't be faith anyway. The unseen plan of God. This spring with the recent deaths of my mom and dad, we went through a, a lifetime of things they saved. And uh, what's really struck me is, is my... Uh, Brother Kenny, he died when he was in first grade. He was only 18 months older than I. Um, and Mom had saved every card, every note, every memory, uh, every item from that funeral of Kenny. Um, and as I sorted through all these items, meticulously saved, I, I wondered, why did Kenny die? And neither my brother or I even get sick with that highly infectious disease. I don't know why. That's the unseen plan of God. Here's some other examples. Joseph was thrown to a pit in Dauphin. Despite his cries, he's sold by man Elisha. Same city, Dauphin looks out. He sees Dauphin surrounded by the Syrians. But then God opens the servant's eyes 
and he shows that between them and that Syrian army are horses and chariots of fire and is protected. Now, that's my kind of saving. John the Baptist is in prison. Presumably his disciples are praying and he's beheaded. Peter's in prison. Disciples praying. He's released by an angel. Again, my kind of saving. God is working in all those situations dramatically in the case of Elisha and Peter through a caravan of Ishmaelites in the case of Joseph by releasing Peter with an angel by bringing John into heaven. All very different examples, all part of God's unseen plan and to the people going through it at that time and undoubtedly all very confusing. My second point is it's the big picture of God. It's not always about us. That's similar to the unseen plan where God is working, but we don't recognize it. But this point is that it's not about us. It's so much bigger than us. Sinclair Ferguson says, God doesn't view isolated events in our lives like we do. He says there's no simple this in our life. Far, far larger picture, far more complex. As God is working through multiple lives and multiple circumstances, he goes on to say that our instinct when things go bad is to ask what God is doing to me, me again. I did that exact same thing. Remember, it's still uh, a number of years ago now. I was coming home from a soccer game. Uh, the kids are with me. We're in my all-time favorite truck. And about five miles from home on Old 27, a drunk driver crosses that center line. I instinctively swerve, but uh, we... Uh, uh, get hit head-on, lots of damage, uh, trucks totaled, and uh, Maddie and I go to the hospital in the ambulance, we get checked out, uh, and I remember after, for weeks after, remember praying, why God, why did this happen, you know, what am I to learn from this, and there's no answer, uh, and so maybe we need to learn that what is happening has very little to do with me, maybe it's not about me. Maybe it's about others. In my case, maybe it was about the other driver. I don't know. I, I do know the court uh, contacted me to see what I thought about the proposed sentence because he had prior drunk driving convictions. So I don't know how many people do this, but I did. I wrote a letter saying, if he doesn't get help, hasn't made some life changes, next time someone will be killed. Joseph saved millions of lives by his actions before and during the famine that was to come. Ultimately, he reserved his family in the line of Christ, that line of Judah. We may not know why or won't understand what God is doing, but as believers, we do know this, that there is no condemnation. There are consequences of sin, most certainly, but we are forgiven. We aren't being punished. That price has been paid by our Lord. And I think we also know this, that silence is not absence. God is intricately weaving into the tapestry of our lives his plan for us. God's plans are happening, sometimes in spite of, sometimes even through life's tragedies. Um, Campus Crusade for Christ Now Crew used to have a a little pamphlet that said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. 
Pastor Ferguson said, God loved Joseph, had a wonderful plan for his life. But as we have to recognize now, it wasn't Joseph's plan. I don't, I don't think Joseph would have lined it out quite that way. It was much, much bigger than Joseph. And it wasn't the brother's plan. It was much more complex. It wasn't Jacob's plan. It was God's plan. And so I think what I've learned through this study is that what is happening to me at the end of the day has very little to do with me. It's probably not so much about me, but more about others. That seems to be how God works. We don't have all the answers. I left you with a lot of questions today. But God has those answers. He cares for you. He cares for even the tiniest birds. We may not be released from the pit like Joseph was or from the ants. But as believers, we are rescued from an eternity in hell. I think the sovereignty of God can bring us an abundance of calm and serenity amidst life's storms. He is working out all things for good. We just have to trust him to handle it by faith. And he's way better at it than we are. Let's pray. Almighty God, we see your hand at work sometimes. Sometimes we don't recognize your hand at work. We know, though, and we got that absolute assurance that those who put our trust in your, your son uh, will be with you in eternity. Uh, thank you for that. We praise you for that. Uh, we pray that as we uh, go about our week, that what we do, we bring you honor and glory. Christ, I pray. Amen.